I've already said this talk is about Jesus and Peter in John 21, and it's obviously about a rather dramatic and large failure, but I think it has relevance to all of us in that we all let ourselves down and let the Lord down in various ways, probably every day. So that's kind of where we're going in this. But before we get into it, you may be wondering why Doctor Who's TARDIS has just appeared on the screen, and I suppose not everybody here watches Doctor Who. Chris and I are huge fans. But the whole point about the TARDIS is, and I'm sure most of you know this, that it's kind of bigger on the inside. And whenever I come to Scripture, and especially, I think, the Gospel of John, I always have this feeling that it's like the TARDIS. It's huge. I mean, it is huger than huge. Um, it has multiple layers of meaning. And you never, ever get to the end of it. Well, I don't think you get to the end of the scripture full, full stop. There's always more to learn and to know and to see as we live it and then come back and reflect on it. So what I'm going to do is skate over the surface, and I'm aware of that. But I would really invite you strongly to return to the passages today, um, especially if they speak to you in any way, because there's more. There are more doors to walk into and more rooms to find. The plan is pretty simple. I'm going to try and locate the events a little bit in context. I'm going to move through the events pretty quickly because we don't have huge amounts of time. I'm going to look at Jesus and Peter in their interaction. And then I'd like us to ask ourselves some questions. And I'm going to give you a few minutes to do that. So I think the first thing to say in coming to John 21 is that this is an odd time in the disciples' experience. I've said on the screen there that it's an in-between time. And I don't know that we often think about that. I certainly hadn't really thought about it until I prepared this. You think about these guys, you know, there are seven of them mentioned in this chapter. They've gone back to Galilee from Jerusalem. But think about what they've experienced in the last week or so. They come in on the, to Jerusalem on the high of Palm Sunday. And okay, their view of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah and to restore the kingdom to Israel is nonsense. You know, they... They were always a bit like the Keystone Cops, not really getting the point or getting the message. But nonetheless, they followed him and they were there as the crowd shouted in adulation. And then during that week, it's a descent and it just gets grimmer and grimmer. I mean, you think this Messiah is going to do something amazing, something like throwing out the Romans and then, oh my goodness... He's being arrested. That was not part of their plan or their mindset. Then even worse, um, he's going before the Jewish authorities. Then he's bumped off to see Pilate. And then, oh my goodness, the crowds have turned against him, as crowds, I'm afraid, are apt to do. And so they come from these heights to the utter horror of crucifixion. I mean... 
There are many good things you could say about the Romans, but there are some things about them, you know, that were pretty grim, and they were really good at inventing cruel ways to kill people. Uh, They wouldn't be the only regime to have done that, I have to say, Um, and we have evidences in our own time, but you know, death on a cross is not just execution, it is complete humiliation, it is horror. And then, of course, they all run away. You know, they said they weren't going to, but they did. And then, three days later, oh my goodness, Jesus is risen from the dead. Oh my goodness, they weren't expecting that either. So that's quite a journey in not very many days. And now you see they're in a time when, hmm, don't quite know what the plan is. Is there a plan? You know, there's hope again. They're no longer in the depths of despair. But what does the resurrection, a resurrected Jesus look like? What, you know, is the relationship still the same? Has it changed? What's going on? What's the future? Remember, they haven't been commissioned yet. They haven't had the Great Commission. So this is an odd time. And seven of them at least go back to Galilee, where it had all started. And you see, there are so many echoes in this chapter. If you take it home and spend some time with it, and then go back to the beginning of John's Gospel and think about all these things that happened on the shores of Lake Galilee, there are echoes and echoes and echoes, echoes of teaching, echoes of call, echoes of miracle. They've come full circle in a way, in a way, but they're not the same because how could you be? You know, three years with Jesus, with this astonishing individual whom you gradually come to know is much more than just an ordinary guy. You've seen him do miracles. You've even seen him raise the dead and now he's resurrected himself. They are not the same, but they have to eat. And so Peter suggests a fishing trip. Apparently it's often good to fish at night. I wouldn't know, but I believe what the books tell me. And it's unsuccessful. So then in the very dim, dim, half-light of dawn, really early when forms are not very clear to see, they become aware of this person, a man standing on the shore of the lake can't really see him clearly but he speaks to them and then he tells them to put the nets on the other side of the boat and of course we know we all know what happens miracle and fish loads of fish there's all sorts of debates and commentaries about the number but I'm not going to get into that because I'm not a scholar and you know it was a lot of fish right Now, in that moment of miracle, it's John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who had considerable spiritual perception, perhaps, the one who was close to him. He's the first to realize, and he shouts out to Peter, it's the Lord, it's the Lord. And then I think we have something remarkable to say about Peter. Now, sorry, we're going backwards. Now we're going forwards. Good. We have something to say about Peter here. Um, Yes, we know how far he fell. 
And I was in a group recently where somebody said it had nothing to do with this or my talk or, or anything. But the guy said, you know, Simon Peter must have been a desperate character to live with and to get on with, you know, always overconfident, unrealistic, boasting, you know, I'll, I'll be there, you know, everybody else will be there, but I'll be there and, and so on and so forth. And I, I can see that that would have been difficult to live with. Yeah, he could be difficult. But there is this other side to him. What does Peter do when John says, it's the Lord? Without even thinking, as it's told to us in the story, he's out of the boat and he's away. And I think it is in those instinctive moments before the brain engages. And of course, Peter was good at that. He frequently acted before brain engaged. But sometimes before brain engages, we get to the truth of ourselves, do we not? We come to the core of what we really feel behind all the rationalizations and so on and so forth. And I think it's very striking that given all that had happened, Peter's first instinct is run towards him. I want you to think for a minute, and it won't be hard because we've all done this. Think of a time when you really let somebody down or when you really let yourself down. Or a bit of both. Now maybe you've seen this person in social gatherings and it's kind of been all right, but you haven't really had a one-to-one with them. And you're out in the street and you see them coming towards you. What's your instinct? Do you move towards them or do you run away? And the running away would be so understandable. It would be so understandable because what do we fear? We fear rejection. Peter runs towards Jesus because that is the desire of his heart. Despite all his impetuosity, his stupidity, his lack of self-knowledge, his overconfidence, yet there is something there that desires Jesus, that, that wants to be with him. And I suppose for many of us in situations like this, it's actually a bit of both. We feel the the pull towards the person to make it right, to sort it out. But there is this great fear of rejection. And I would put it to you that that is not unlike when we sin every day, um, especially if we're feeling away from God. It can be quite difficult to make the way back. But I think the invitation of God is to come. And Peter's heart still desired the Lord. We come then to a very beautiful thing, I think. You know, in verse 12, if you read it at home, you you see, I think, that the disciples are quite nervous of Jesus, you know. They don't quite know what to make of him. And Jesus does a wonderful thing for them. When they arrive on the shore, the charcoal fire is already burning. The fish and the bread are on it. Personally, I'd have loved to have been there because I love fish. (laughs) I'd have loved to have been with the Lord, but it just sounds the most amazing breakfast to me. My husband would have run 100 miles because he can't abide fish, but there you go. Um, It's a barbecue, a little 
fresh meal on the fire. And I think there is a great deal in that, that Jesus knows our frailties and he knows our legitimate needs. He was really human and he knew about hunger and after a night's work, you need your breakfast. So he ministers to them with the food. But it is also a way of saying, I am renewing fellowship with you again. I want to be with you. I want you to be with me. It is a moment of intimacy and belonging. And I would strenuously invite you to come back to this space sometime this week. Now, if you kind of look at the screen at the moment and think, that's quite nice, maybe she's got a point there. I mean, you might also be thinking she's raving, that's possible. But if you're kind of thinking, hmm, that might be interesting, and you go out of here, you'll forget it and you won't do it. Well, it doesn't matter what I say, that is irrelevant. But David spoke very wonderfully, I felt, last week, um, about habits and practices that we need to put into our lives to curb our forget of God's grace, to curb our forgetfulness of what Jesus is saying to us. And there was that wonderful quote about um, the habits of the heart forming the habitations of the spirit. So if you feel in some way that God is speaking to you through any of this this morning, you think, I'd like to go back to that, stick it in your diary, because that's the only way it's going to happen. Actually put it in your diary and make it as important as your meetings this week. Once that begins to happen and things are scheduled in, they have more chance of happening regularly, and the heart space and the head space opens to God more easily. Okay, finally, to Peter and Jesus. Again, it's good to pause for a moment and realise just how much Peter lost in that courtyard. We read his extravagant assertions. Chris and Richard read them wonderfully for us and put so much feeling into that. And then, you know, it all fell. He fell. And he'd lost his position in the band of disciples, in a sense, his job. He had lost everything. And not none of the rest of them, as far as we know, had promised so much and fallen so far. That's hard. That is hard. And I admit it's a lot bigger than our daily feelings. Um, this is very big. But there are reads across to our smaller feelings. Anyway, it's a very significant encounter. And one that is very painful for Peter. And I suppose, you know, we sing about the love of God. We think about the love of God, and so we should. It is the very basis of our lives. And I think it is the strongest force in this universe, actually. I think it's a lot more solid than even this wood here. It is completely reliable. You will never get to the end of it. It is always going to be there whether you feel it or not. But it's hard to walk into a place of shame, isn't it? You know, 
It's really hard when you've let people down very badly or yourself. It's not easy. And I suppose we might have liked Jesus to have kind of patted Peter on the head and put his arm around him and said, oh, it's all right, you know, it's all forgotten. But that doesn't work. It doesn't work if there's going to be a healing. It doesn't work. We have to come to Jesus or the Father. Some people find it more comfortable to come to the Father. Some find it more comfortable to come to Jesus. It doesn't really matter which. Um, But we have to come in honesty. I realize this is not simple. And I realize it's really not easy. I ran away from God for some considerable time because I felt I had failed him. I know what that is like. But until we can find at least some honesty and enough courage or encouragement from others to come to him and lay it out before him, there can't be healing. And he wants us to come. And I think with the big things sometimes, it's not all at once either that There may be things in our lives that we struggle with quite a lot and maybe we can only manage a little bit of honesty at this time and then maybe we'll spiral back to it again and there will be a deeper encounter and a deeper healing and then we may spiral back to it again and another encounter and a deeper healing. Or there may be things that we lay before God almost on a daily basis. We struggle with, we haven't got an answer to yet. But the honesty is key. We have to ask ourselves the questions. But I am not here this morning to beat you over the head. And the last thing I want you to do is to think of God as judging you in these times. His love enables our honesty because we have something solid to stand on, sit on, lie on when we look at ourselves. And yes, that happens in little steps over a lifetime, and so it should, because we couldn't see all of it all at once. But we are coming to love and to the releasing of burdens, even if it can take quite a while. So we have three denials in the courtyard. We have three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And we have three affirmations. Why did Peter fall? He didn't really know himself. He was overconfident. And I think in spiritual growth, we have to take seriously the need to know ourselves. It's not narcissism. I know it can slide into narcissism. I know, I mean... Humans can turn anything on their head. I mean, we're all good at it. It's what sin is about. Distortions of the ego, which are big. But to look at ourselves in the light of God's love is an immensely important thing to ask the questions. And if there's something this morning that you're finding it hard to deal with, don't be afraid to go to somebody else, to a friend, to a pastor. There will be prayer ministry on this side of the church at the end. That's a good place to take it as well. 
The wonderful thing about this encounter is, even though it hurts Peter so much, and it does, on the third question, he cries out in pain, Lord, you know that I love you. You see all things. You can see all human hearts. You can see into me. You can see that I love you. Yes, it hurts. But in leading him back into this hard, hard place, Peter is healed. He is affirmed. He is given a job. It is as if Jesus is saying to him, not only do I forgive you, Peter, I'm trusting you, giving you a job. He's being commissioned. So what did he find in that tough place? He found love. He found forgiveness, acceptance, restoration, vocation. And I think a really important thing also is to consider that Peter will be a much better pastor of the flock, amongst other things, because he fell and was restored. It's kind of hard to keep up the self-righteousness if you have an awareness of your own weakness and sin. And yet, you know, when we come to Jesus... There is so much that is good about us, but there is also a poverty in us. A need of him that will never stop till we get to heaven. We need him. We need his life. And those who've fallen, maybe not in quite as dramatic a way as Peter, but those who know their weakness are a bit more open bit gentler to others in their weakness because make no mistake brothers and sisters we are all weak and we need the Lord and to come to know our deep need to depend on him is a very good spiritual place to be that is a place of potential immense spiritual growth now there's just a couple of things to come I want to ask, as we come towards the end, why did Jesus focus on love, you know? Why did he keep saying to him, do you love me? Why? And I think it is because the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here, it's the deeper kind. It's the kind that goes to the very core of us. It's the kind that goes to the heart springs, the springs of our motivation. It's about feelings, yes, but it's not kind of the shallow, frothy stuff on the surface. So that's fine in and of itself, but it doesn't last. This kind of heart space involves our minds. It involves our thinking. It involves our asking of hard questions our questions and David led us wonderfully last week into thinking about our culture and the acts of resistance to that that Jesus calls us to so it involves our questioning of our culture it involves our wills it involves our choices in other words it's holistic it had to be a question of love 
And that is a question, the question that Jesus poses to all of us this morning. It's not me posing it, it's him. Do you love me? And as we search our hearts in relation to that, please know that you do it from a basis of already being loved. Um, He is not trying to destroy you. He is trying to heal you and bring you to a deeper dependence on him. I love the desert fathers and mothers. I don't know as much about them as I'm going to know, but I know a little bit. Um, And St. Anthony was one of the first, probably the first, to walk out into the desert because he felt that Christianity, the gospel, was so compromised under the new regime where the Roman Empire was um, looking more favorably on it. He went out into the desert to face himself and to find God in a deeper way. And reputedly, this is what he said every morning when he got up. Today, I start again. So each day, we make our choice. And it's really, really good practice to make an appointment with yourself every day and to think, who do I choose to follow today? I choose to follow Jesus. Now, I really am in the last bit. I mentioned already what David talked about last week. Um, And we did not collaborate on this. We have not spoken about it, but it was a marvelous opening, David, so I thank you for that. Um, What practices are we going to put in place to curb our forgetfulness? And I would suggest that asking questions of ourselves, not judgmentally, but in a an attitude of opening ourselves to Jesus and his love is a fantastic practice to adopt. But it is not going to happen unless you put it in your diary. If you don't keep a diary, then stick it wherever you stick these things. It has to become flesh in our ordinary lives. One way to do it, but I mean, you will find a thousand different ways. This is not prescriptive, but... The idea is really to sit with Jesus regularly or the Father, to know his love more deeply, to listen to him and ask questions. Our culture, as David said last week, is indeed over busy. It is very driven. There is a lot of addiction out there, addiction to busyness, work, schedules, targets, performance, this, that and the other. Um, And it's not always, but often quite shallow. It is resistant to reflection or stillness or silence. But I would suggest to you that those are the very practices that we need to put into our lives. If we are going to know Jesus in any deeper way, and if we're going to know his love in any deeper way. And believe me, he was right when he said He is the source of our lives. Without him, we can do nothing. 
Without him, we can do nothing. And he says again to us, as he said in John 15 this morning, abide in me. It's an invitation. And it's an invitation to make it practical. If we listen with God for his values, and if we try to live that out, albeit inadequately and with many mistakes, and I think small steps are much better than huge ones from which we fall dramatically, then we're living it. Then we return to reflect on our experience and to ask questions again. And for that reason... I have given you some spiritual formation questions. They're very simple. Um, I've also given you a quote from Tozer. It's one that I love about um, the love of God. And I'm going to give you, it's not 10 past 12 yet. Hmm. I'll give you about three minutes with them. Now, those questions may be completely irrelevant to what God is saying to you this morning. And that's great because if he's saying something else, go with that. Go with your heart. Go with what he's saying. These are only a suggestion about the kinds of questions that we need to be asking ourselves. So I'm going to give you three minutes of silence and then we'll sing our last hymn together. Thank you for listening. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, which goes to the very core of us, if we let it. Thank you for your love, which really is the strongest power in the universe. Thank you that right now you are holding us, whether we are aware of it or not. Thank you that your love for us never fails. And we pray, Lord, that you will write this word upon our hearts this week. And that this week we will have the courage to ask ourselves if we are running towards you or running away. And we know, Lord, it's complicated. We find it hard to understand ourselves, even never name other people. And there'll be different areas of our lives where there are different answers to that question. But lead us, Lord. This is why you gave us the Holy Spirit, to lead us and counsel us and teach us. Lord, we give you our desire this morning to be a bit more open to you, a bit more discerning about our world, our culture, and ourselves. Lead us, Lord, because you are the one who has the life that we need. Amen.